0: You are listening to The Pulse, Rod Murray's e-learning tech podcast.
1: Number 211, Rob Abel of one Ed Tech, also known as IMS Global Consortium. That teaser was from Air on a G-String by Bach. It's performed by UK's Brunswick Duo. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for the full piece. Today's podcast episode is sponsored by D2L. You may know their main product, the Brightspace Learning Management System. I, of course, would only accept sponsorship from companies and products that I'm very fond of. So please check out their website at d2l.com slash to learn more. I also invite you to follow me on Twitter. My handle is Rods Pods. As always, I post links to the things we talk about on my show notes website at www.rods.pulsepodcast.com. In this episode, I have the pleasure of interviewing Rob Abel. He's the CEO of OneEdTech. Now, I hadn't really heard of OneEdTech, and it turns out I knew its predecessor, the IMS Global Learning Consortium. EdTech is, quote, focused on expanding access to EdTech innovation in support of breakthrough and evolving educational models in K-12, higher ed, and corporate education, end quote. We discuss Rob's background, IMS global transition to one EdTech. Incidentally, apparently IMS, which I never knew, stands for Instructional Management Systems. That mnemonic seems to have gone out of favor. We talk about the growth of their membership and all the things that they do, standards, certification, code libraries, reference implementations, their trusted app ecosystem, digital credentials, a comprehensive learning record, open badges, blockchain, and more. So without further ado, here's my interview with Rob Abel. So I'm really happy to say that I'm interviewing Rob Abel today, who's the CEO of EdTech. So Rob, uh, tell us, uh, before we dive into... um, one Ed Tech. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved?
0: Yeah, well, thanks, thanks, Rodney. I, you know, uh, I'm a I'm a technology guy at heart. You know, I started in in the world of uh, work. You know, as a physicist slash computer engineer engineer and uh, building systems and products that eventually brought me to Silicon Valley and um, and then in about, um, and I had, you know, all kinds of experience in terms of, you know, working in, uh, I was managing the TRW Advanced Computing Lab in Sunnyvale, California for about 10 years. And I was at National Semiconductor and then eventually at Oracle. And then when I was at Oracle, I got involved in um, the education sector, um, uh, essentially, because I was working on what people were calling at the time e-learning products. and. Uh, So basically, I transitioned then to really kind of educational technology, and I worked for a company called Collegius, which was an IT outsourcing uh, company for higher ed. We actually managed the IT for about 100 universities, and we ended up selling that. And um, along that journey, I became uh, became, um, uh, aware of an organization called IMS Global Learning Consortium, which is the old name for what is called One EdTech today, that was in the mid '90s, and I was actually a sponsor of the original work of the IMS Global Learning Consortium when I was at Oracle. Um, but eventually, I got more involved in it and and uh, came came in as a CEO in 2000, 2006, right at the beginning of two thousand and six, um, and. We've experienced some rather dramatic growth since then, and that's been my job for the last seventeen plus years now. Wow! So yeah, it's a, been quite a quite a journey. Very interesting story, actually, especially for those that are in education because we're we're we've done a lot of great work, but still we're kind of a little bit under the radar um, for for a lot of folks.
1: Yeah, in fact, uh, that was one of the things I wanted to ask you about because I was certainly uh, familiar with. Um, IMS Global uh, Consortium, um, mm-hmm. I helped uh, bring uh, Blackboard into our my previous uh, institution, uh-huh. uh, Thomas Jefferson University, and that was, gosh, way back, that was Blackboard version three or something. And I mm-hmm. know they were pretty active in, the, uh, yeah. in IMS and, and as were some of the other uh, learning management systems. So why the name change? Was there a change in, in your focus or business? How did that come about?
0: It was really just kind of a natural evolution, um, you know, The the, the in, certainly in the very beginning, but also 2005, 2006, um, relatively small organization, 50 members were a membership organization. So the members are universities, they're suppliers in ed tech. Now there's K-12 school districts and states and so forth. It was small and very, very, very technology focused, right? So it was, was really kind of a bunch of brainiacs, you know, getting together. Trying to figure out how you, you know, uh, create the foundation for things like learning management systems, so systems like Blackboard. And um, the board actually brought me in not just because I was a former technologist, but because I, I uh, had experience, you know, working with with institutions. And so, so our goal was really to 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 become more of a mainstream type of organization, which for us was about creating interoperability standards that really had a major impact on teaching and learning and therefore would be of greater interest to the actual institutional, you know, end users and supporters of those end users. And so we grew, we grew literally from 50 members to, to about, I guess, 800 or so, you know, last year. And, and the board, even a few years ago before that, they were like, well, you know, the the brand IMS Global Learning Consortium believe it or not the acronym IMS stood for instructional management system which is which is a term that the original founders <laughs> yeah the original founders of IMS thought would be the name for what we now generally call an LMS that's how early it was started it was before LMSs even exist but anyway so IMS really didn't mean anything and IMS Global Learner, every time we talked to someone, we had to spend the first 20 minutes kind of explaining, you know, why do we have this name? So the One EdTech name is a name, actually, uh, it took us about three or four years to, to develop it and roll it out as a community. But it signifies that we're essentially a community that's united in this idea of powering learner potential through um, an open, trusted, and innovative EdTech ecosystem. Because that, at the end of the day, Whether our members are represented by end users or they're more represented by the suppliers and the technologists. Really what we're trying to do is create this ecosystem that allows innovation to thrive and scale. And we happen to do that by we do a lot of things in terms of collaboration, but our one of our real strengths historically has always been a developer of open standards that allow things like LMS, LMSs to talk to different types of digital tools and, and ultimately just make it easier for faculty you know um people like you and, and uh, to, to really innovate you know because the because it really lowers the barriers to innovation when it's easy to plug new types of tools and digital curriculum and assessment systems and so forth you know into that uh institutional ecosystem so so one ed tech is really just an evolution of the of where we were have been going anyway it's not like we're doing anything new or different we just have a kind of a better name and and uh and we think the the idea of power powering learner potential particularly together we power learner potential as being the main uh brand promise of one edtech because we are in fact a community that's kind of uniquely united i mean in a, you know i mean we we really every day are bringing together organizations to work together that normally wouldn't work together and um and it's it's been working i mean we started in that, that LMS arena but now as i mentioned we're in all different types of technical areas are really relating to educational technology assessment and uh, data analytics and so forth. But we're even now into open badges and digital credentials. So we're actually enabling ecosystem of of the credentials that help learners tell their story in a better way, you know, and open up essentially, you know, open up opportunity and um, and choice, you know, for everybody
1: involved. Yeah, it brings up a number of questions. Um uh, do you? Uh, I know you're focused on standards. Do you actually develop code that's then shared by other institutions, or is it strictly on the standards level?
0: Well, we we do we do develop a a lot of code. Uh, when I say we, I mean I mean the the members. You know, we have about 45 staff, which is pretty large for a standard setting organization. We're about the same size as the World Wide Web Consortium right now, and we're still growing. And the World Wide Web Consortium is actually kind of flat. But but the, what happens, of course, is that you know, you can you can write a great standard, and be, it's a paper document, and whatever. But developers want code. You know, they don't want to read a you know, fifty page you know document, right? They they want code. And so, over the evolution of time since I've been at at One ED Tech, we we've uh, regularly now when we release a specification or update a specification, code libraries come along with that that help developers. Also. Um, test harnesses to allow them to certify. We have certification testing that allows them to basically figure out, you know, will they actually interoperate with these other products? And so these are real test harnesses. They're serious technology. It's not just a marketing thing, you know, where where they can test out their products. And we have reference implementations too of some of this, some of the pieces. So, So for instance, if you're developing a tool, wouldn't it be great if you could plug up against a reference implementation of an LMS, for instance, to find out if it's real, if you can really implement the standard correctly, and occasionally our members do get together and build some uh, software that can be used to help it, to help with the infrastructure um, uh, that that is kind of the common, least common denominator thing. That once it's all agreed upon, it's kind of like when you know once upon a time. Um, Everybody developed web servers from scratch, you know, and then the Apache Foundation came along and they created the canonical, you know, reference implementation for Apache. Now, now everyone builds web servers on top of the Apache Foundation, which really, if you think about it, goes beyond standards because that's actually code. So we have some areas that are like that. We have we have some tools that our school districts and universities actually use to monitor the student data privacy aspects of apps, because as we call it, the trusted app ecosystem, because there's all these apps and everybody wants to know not just the interoperability characteristics, but also the, the privacy aspects, because that's a big thing, important thing in education. We have another another project in a similar way that provides, it's called the Case Network a Competencies and Academic Standards Exchange Network, which is basically a way to for states to publish, state departments of ed, to publish their learning standards in an open format that can be consumed by anyone and everyone, you know, that needs to align content to digital standards. So every once in a while, we jump into things like that Um, through the board. You know, we have a board of governance that's the members that's elected from the membership that helps guide us because we don't want to step too far, you know, in terms of Building software because we because we're trying to enable right that trying to enable ecosystem of people doing that, but we just go far enough where we feel we can lift up the whole industry.
1: Yeah. So um, does that mean you don't actually host production resources for your members, or is it strictly just getting helping them implement things to get started?
0: Yeah. The well, it, you could say that the, all the things I talked about whether the code libraries the the um uh the certification suites are production resources right but it's but it because it helps them actually create their production level product but they create their products we don't we don't create the, the, we the code we have we we um license it apache 2 right which is an open source license that allows anyone to take it and pretty much pretty much do anything they want to do with it so so our thought is it helps them along but but you know we're working with the, you know we're working from everyone from you mentioned Blackboard they're part of the anthology now obviously they're big but all sorts you know we have literally some 450 suppliers that are members and it ranges from Google and Microsoft you know all the way down to the tiniest little supplier so some of them really benefit from using those libraries and code subs and it really accelerates them others they're of course you know building their own things in their own way um, but at the end of the day the point is all the products work together and that's what where the benefit comes in for the for the, the faculty and the in the students
1: um, so i'm wondering how the pandemic and some of these uh, struggles and you see mergers you know all the time uh, and or, or or colleges just going out of business uh how has this affected your business um can you talk to that
0: yeah it from a business point of view you know quote unquote you know we're a non-profit organization but we're, we're we are business you know we're just a non-profit business um it hasn't affected us too much because the uh the, the organizations that tend to become members of one edtech tend to be larger better resourced universities so it's it's kind of, and it's kind of a tale of two cities right so those, those larger state flagship institutions are just you know, getting loads and loads of applicants and so forth, um, and um, and and in general, ed tech as a sector has been growing. You know, from a from a technology investment perspective, and although it did slow down a bit here in the last year, since the you were sort of coming out of the pandemic, and people are people are concerned about you know how is the the market going to shape up? Is the you know everyone's sort of envisioning a some sort of recession or soft recession, or you know, hard, hard, soft, something. You know, and anytime that happens, that will tend to cut back the ability of suppliers or anyone else to invest in organizations like ours. But we play the long game. You know, we're very, we've grown a lot. We're very healthy. Um, but we, we also look ahead. You know, uh, we, from the time we start working on something to the time it shows up in the market is usually five or ten years. You know, lit- literally, literally, and. But the, you know, it 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 hurts my heart, you know, to see the the smaller uh, institutions, you know, suffering, because, um, you know, we we uh, when I came in in two thousand six, we had very little uh, footprint, so to speak, you know, in K twelve, and now it's now it's co equal with higher ed. So the interesting thing about K twelve, of course, is they don't have the tech resources, the IT resources in general. Even the large school districts have very little tech resource the interesting thing there is though that that makes them more supportive of what we're doing right because what we're doing is we're really holding the line and saying suppliers you know your products have to plug and play you know the institutions cannot afford custom integrations they cannot afford you know deep it and and so so in a way, we feel in, in higher ed, although our history has been in some of the, the more better resourced institutions, we're now tending to do more, more work with even community colleges and such because they're in, in some ways more like the K-12 institutions that really actually need to leverage what we bring to the table in terms of the standards. And then the the digital credentials work we're doing, open badges, and we have something called comprehensive learner record which is really a better way to do a transcript in terms of really helping students tell their story these are also tend to be of interest to the the less well resourced colleges and universities because these are more about helping students you know do show their stuff and get better jobs and address better opportunities unfortunately we play the very long game you know so you you can join as a member you you'll get some benefit immediately but the benefit you really get is over you know, three, four, or five years, you know, as you stay, stay with us. Um, you know, I just hope that the the smaller institutions that are merging and so forth that they they find a way to to um you know really resonate with the either their current mem- you know their current student customer base or or find creative ways to work that forward because diversity is everything in education to me in the US. That's what it's all about. I've been around the world and I've seen lots of good examples of education and education and systems that people are very proud of, but nobody has the diversity, right. That the U S has. And that's, that's the hallmark of what, you know, makes our system really ahead of all the others, despite the fact that we may not get as good of test grades or whatever, you know, Uh that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. In fact, that, that touches, you touched on a couple of things I was going to ask. Uh, I think you started out pretty much in higher ed, but it seems like uh, what, what uh what's the breakdown between uh, activities in higher ed um you know secondary schools and, and 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 court in the corporate area?
0: well so the so the uh, it's interesting because we give them all independent places to to work you know together. so we give the K-12 institutions a place to do work together, higher ed institutions a place to work together and the suppliers a place to work together and then we also bring them together. At various critical junctures, so they can advise and help each other. But really, today, um, you know, if you look at the membership, uh, the overall membership, we have different levels or tiers of membership. There's uh, there's three different tiers. We have about 900 members. So, you know, we probably have about 400 450 suppliers. We have about 150 higher ed institutions. Um, you know, and we have a couple of hundred a couple of hundred K twelve school districts. So K twelve actually has more members. Um, they don't pay as much. So the interesting thing about organization is if you're smaller and your budgets are lower, you pay less. So that's kind of cool, you know. You know, the bigger organizations pay the most, as they probably should. Um, and uh, but but the dynamic is really really interesting because what we find is that some some of the areas we work on, like you know digital curriculum and areas like that, that tech, technical technology associated. K-12 is actually leading in that, right? Because that's sort of become the, almost the predominant mode in, in K-12, particularly in large districts. It's not unusual for them to have 500 to a thousand digital applications that they're dealing with and managing with, even with a small IT staff. In higher ed tends to be a lesser lesser number, but there are things that, uh, that, are, that, that are ahead in higher ed are things like the actual learning platforms themselves, You know the use of learning analytics, data analytics, and being able to capture analytics about what's going on. And I say also this digital credentialing area is an area that's really, really taking off in a small way. We're in the early phase of a a takeoff for the interoperable digital credentials. That um, you know, I think twenty years from now they're just going to be ubiquitous, quite frankly. But we're we're to the point now where a lot of institutions are experimenting with them. Some are actually using them already to help employment but there's a gleam in the eye of the universities that this is just a better way to serve their students not just their existing students but their alumna, alumni, alumni. Yeah.
1: right so yeah one of the um a while back i interviewed um uh a credible which uh, mm-hmm. has a system? Are, were they one of your partners, or do they work? They are. Them?
0: They're one of our members. Yeah, members. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They'll be at the Digital Credential Summit a couple of weeks in Dallas with us. So,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. great, great. I, it's amazing that uh, this that sort of thing hasn't caught on sooner. You know, it's always uh, uh, amazed me how people are still dependent on you know calling up their school to get a to get a credentials, get their transcript, and and uh, it's just ripe for uh, automation.
0: Yeah, uh, it is. It is, and and the cool thing about these new credentials—sorry to, to interrupt—but is is they're verifiable, right? Right. So the point right. is, it's a digital credential. It's stored somewhere. It might be stored somewhere where the student is storing it, or it might go to an employer. They're completely verifiable, right? And they can
1: actually contain. Is that a lot because more they're they're on the blockchain, or is that just? Uh... <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, they they can be on the blockchain, yes, but they don't have to be on the blockchain. The 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 open badges and the CLR technology uh require verification just through protocols that were developed via open badges. So it doesn't actually matter where they're stored. Um, but they but but the 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 blockchain naturally overlaps with this because people are interested in well how do you store the particularly like governments and others how do you store these so they can last forever. And even if the original provider, you know, the issue what's called the issuer goes out of business or whatever, you know, how do you maintain that so so the, the related blockchain comes up a lot it was a very very hot topic about three years ago it's sort of diminishing a little bit right now but you know it's it's definitely going to be tied to this area long term there's no doubt about it or other alternative you know technologies other yeah. immutable records so so to speak you know right
1: the- you yeah. what, what's an immutable record other than the blockchain yeah. <laughs> i don't know what that could be i mean do you, do you work at that level with um say ethereum to to uh craft that, that kind of uh standard uh and not we don't.
0: we don't but but we have we have members um that that implement blockchain and so we've we've helped them we we've helped define how you use blockchain to store credentials such as ours and in some cases you know exactly how you do it technically pretty much mostly now is just um uh I'll, I'll say but you know prototypes you know of how to do it. Um because that starts to get into the implementation of it, of, of how you would do it. Um, so, so, so we have, as part of our Open Badges standard, for instance, information on how you can utilize blockchain and implementing Open Open Badges. Um, but that's really, you know, that implementation choice is up to the the actual implementer. Um, I was just thinking, I'm thinking, you know, I'm a computer scientist at heart, so. So the uh, uh, the blockchain idea is a really great idea, but it's very expensive computationally, and so I'm just thinking that somebody's going to like look at this, and in five years somebody's going to come and go. Well, you could do this, but it's here's yeah. a better way. It's not going to be as expensive or something like that. Well, I, I, I,
1: I think as uh, um, proof of stake, you know, the the theory moved to proof of stake, which uh, apparently is is uh, cheaper than the way it used to be done, uh, and uh, I think once uh, my own uh thought of so you know once once the sec gets gets involved and in they they standardize some of this and and give some blessings to uh some of these you know contract systems built on uh, ethereum i think that that'll go a long way uh you know when speaking of um uh, of badges uh, my little uh my knowledge of that is a little data but i always remember mozilla having a system to do badges, are are they still doing that? Or are they working with you? Uh, how no, that they hand,
0: they handed it off to us in, in oh, okay. 2016. Yeah, in 20 they started it. They had an effort on that, and in 2016 they we created an agreement where they essentially handed it off to us. And um and so it's the same thing. When I say open badge, it's the same thing that Mozilla is doing. But now we're on version 2.1, and actually version three is coming out. So so we're we're what we did, and the reason why Mozilla. One of the reasons why Mozilla chose us as the steward of the Open Badges is um, we've really made it interoperable. So before it was before it was some software, and people were implementing some open source software, and it was called Open Badges. But was there actually any checking to see whether whether there were, you know if one product created an Open Badge could another product actually consume it? Right, because that's the whole right. idea is to create. And it was that, so we're very good at that. You know, we've done that with, uh, we've got over 8,000 certified products, right? In our product directory, not not all wow. open badges, but <laughs> there's, only about, there's only about 35 that are like uh, on open badges CLR now, but that's 35 more than when Mozilla started doing it. And what we just, that, we actually, yeah, yeah, we actually just did a study and there's, and there's from those products that are certified, there's some 74 million, you know, badges that open, what we call open badges that were, Issued in the last year, so that's a pretty significant number. (laughs) Yeah, I was.
1: uh, Again, I'm sort of a little out of the loop on on that sort of thing. So, um, how is that? So, you're saying that uh, the use of badges is really growing. What's what's the um, what type of uh, of school or organization is tends to use them the most? Where is that? Where where are you seeing that growth?
0: It's uh, in. in, I'll focus in on higher ed because that's sort of probably the easiest one to describe. So, they're kind of two you know, things going on. One is you've got some sort of um, degree program that is very, you know, workforce oriented. So you want to have skills, right, documented. It's not just just a, a matter of, you know, getting grades, but you want to actually capture skills. So open badges is perfect for that. And you've got all different types of institutions, you know, working on that. Again, they tend to be ones that, that they tended to, to not be like the flagship universities, right? Because they're not too concerned. It's more like the the innovators kind of the on the bubble, the Western Governors University and the Southern New Hampshire University, right? And um, uh, organizations like that, as well as some of the community colleges, some of the smaller state-level institutions. So they're generally using these to enhance their workforce-related Programs, Or some of them, the, the area where the R1s are doing some really interesting stuff, which you probably could still call research in a way, but where the um, you're generally trying to credential uh, the idea that a student is demonstrating certain skills, more like soft skills or whatever, and they're demonstrating them across the curriculum. So not in a particular course, but they're demonstrating the fact that they're really good at teamwork right? And, and so these are kind of interesting things. So Penn State is doing some really interesting work there, and some others. Um, and then the, the thing that's made the open badges, the credentials really move forward, is also there's an organization called ACRO, the Association of um, Registrars, uh, a big associate. They basically represent all the higher ed registrars. They endorsed this concept of the comprehensive learner record or the CLR, which is a essentially a better transcript that has more information and can can hold in it uh, open badges. So they've sort of set the path, the pathway there from the registrars, because they're the ones that, right, they're the official keepers of the records, right? They're the, they're the ones that are responsible for all those printed, you know, whatever, you know, things that they, they they're getting it, you know, they understand that this needs to go in a different direction. And that's really a good thing that they're involved because it kind of comes down to the credibility, right? You still want the credibility that a registrar puts on a skill or a credential or whatever it is. And that's that's starting to move, too, as well. So it's really, it's really, really an interesting time. We're probably in the fifth year of a, you know, 25-year, you know, kind of thing, uh, it, you know. But um, the, the interesting thing now is, in some ways, the institutions are getting better at digital credentials in these pockets. Then the employers are ready to accept them. The employers are still doing the old-fashioned, you know, resume keyword search thing, which is another hurdle we're trying to come over. We're start get over. We're trying to actually work with with uh, corporations right now and uh, to get them. The interesting thing, though, is the corporations themselves are using open badges in their own upskilling no. programs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that's the weird thing is that they're actually using them, but when you look at the hiring door, you know, it. they're, they're not ready yet. So we're, you know, we're, well, that's interesting. Some, you know, that yeah.
1: I don't know if you, uh, happen to notice my last podcast interview was with, uh, Edson Barton at U Science and the thing that he brought up So which is that a lot of, uh, you know, freshman students, they don't know what they're going to study. And, you know, they're just yeah, asked to pick a, pick a, a major and they really don't know what they want to do, but, as he pointed out, if you if you make a partnership with uh, with industry and you you make that linkage where they can see that you know what they're studying is going to be meaningful and maybe lead them to a career path, and um, are, are they one of your partners? I don't know. You you science? Are you familiar with them?
0: They are not. No, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not not familiar with them. Seems like so- there
1: there's a lot of uh, mm-hmm. um, you know common interests there, and uh, it's, that's, that's interesting. Yeah.
0: Well, what you're saying, what you're talking about there, has really made a big difference for uh, Arizona State University, right? As who's kind of known for working with corporations, or Starbucks, or whatever. They've made this, this, all of those programs involve involve more micro credentials, right, to allow people to incrementally, you know, gain skills, and so that direct tie to the workforce just just seems like a a bit of a no-brainer right that, that that for a long time the the higher institutions have you know if they can get better at those even in select programs it really just helps them it helps society it helps it helps everyone um and um and creating opportunities for the, a more diverse student base as well is a really really good thing um so so that's the digital credentials are cool because they really support that whole, Movement, you know, again, it's kind of about choice and opportunity, you know, which is kind of the whole power learner potential thing that we're into.
1: Yeah, I remember um, attending a lecture by, by uh, an industry um, uh, executive saying that, uh, you know, the students that are graduating now are going to change careers, not just jobs, they could change careers 10 times uh, throughout their lifetime. And that was. And I learned that maybe ten years ago, and it seems to be, you know, happening faster and faster with uh, everything you're hearing these days about artificial intelligence and 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 how do you, how do you groom you know um, our students to uh, be able to participate in in these changing uh, uh, environments out there? And uh, it seems like we have to be more more sensible about uh, how we support them.
0: Yeah, they it, call the they call there's this thing concept they call the T shaped learner. I don't know if you've ever
1: yes, seen yes that exactly. right where
0: where it's like you're broad in a number of areas, but you also can go deep. You know, you also could go deep in what happens during your career. Did you end up going deep in different
1: areas as is required? Yeah. right. You yeah, know, but you have to have so a foundation. You know, you that, have to have uh, that foundation. Yeah, right? yeah. Right. right. I, are you doing much uh, in? International I don't think you've mentioned that yet or are, are there other uh, similar organizations that cover international scene or are you there as well
0: yeah we we are we you know we are a global organization about 20 but only about 20 percent of the membership uh, is from outside the USA or outside North America I should say but the the reason why it's such a relatively small number is because the growth in the USA has been so rapid but we actually are growing significantly in Europe we have about a hundred members in Europe. We have uh, some 70 or 80 members in Japan. Um, and we have smatterings of members really kind of all over the globe, like 28 different countries. We have members. What the interesting thing is is that we we've learned, you know you can you can publish standards and they're open standards and everybody uses them. And I can go almost anywhere in the world and people will find, you know, people will say they're using our standards, and that's wonderful but, you know, education tends to be kind of regionally <laughs> clustered, right? Right. You know, in some way, shape or form. Right. So, um, uh, so, so that's why we tend to focus in on regions. And even like in Europe, we have little clusters in specific countries where we're very, very strong because the concept of ecosystem, you know, requires, requires, you know, the, this agreement or this unification amongst organizations that they're working together to make something happen in their region. But we're, we're very proud we we actually are what's called the category A liaisons with ISO IEC. ISO IEC is kind of the best known what people would say is de jure standard organization, right they in other words they create official standards that are published all over the world, governments are the members and so forth. We're a category A liaison which to make a long story short basically means we can they're interested in publishing literally anything we have because we're very, very well known. Um, in terms of the quality of our standards work itself, we really we really have a strong um, process there. And so our we know for a fact that our standards are used in China. We don't have a single member in China right now. Um, Hong Kong, we have a couple, but <laughs> anyway, so but so yeah, we're all over and and um, before the pandemic, typically we would hold meetings in other parts of the world, you know, about four times a year, maybe five, This year, we'll finally be back to our summit in Europe face-to-face, which was done virtually for the last several years. And and, uh, Japan, we always have a meeting every year, and I'm sure we'll do that again this year. Even last year, we had it in Japan. Um, It was kind of at the height of pandemic, but it's it's really fascinating. Uh, You get a really fascinating perspective to see the differences in the education system and even the difference in terms of the industries work and so forth. Um, I'm not sure I could easily summarize it in a few sentences or whatever, (laughs) but but education is different all around the world.
1: And uh, Do you get input from faculty that, you know, this is something that we really need that's something that you're going to work on? How how do you solicit uh, information about uh, that might, um, you know, change (laughs) your direction or path?
0: Uh, I wish we had more input from faculty. We we tend to get input from faculty because sometimes people like you, you know, who are expert in educational technology actually show up in our meetings, right? And we've had some famous examples of that where, where we had faculty members that were also kind of technologists at the same time who have come in and dramatically impacted some of our best known work. Something called Learning Tools Interoperability was a guy by the name of Dr. Charles Severance from University of Michigan, who is a faculty there today but also very strong computer science. You know, he really helped guide that. Um, the, the input we tend to get from faculty is through a, the surrogates, which are the people that serve faculty at those institutions. So it's the academic technology support people at, in higher ed, as well as the in the, the instructional support people in school districts and schools. It's also the curriculum people. So we tend to get input more indirectly that way from where faculty want to go. But to us, that is the thing we love to hear about is the impact on the faculty and the students. And we have this thing we call digital on day one, which which has been a stronger call to action in K-12 than higher ed, but it's also needed in higher ed. You know, just the ability for the student and the teacher to show up in the classroom on day one and have all the digital stuff working without worrying about how to log into everything right. is a <laughs> is a huge benefit it's of huge. our work. It's it's a huge benefit, right? More time to spend on instruction versus goofing around with all the technology stuff, you know. Um, and and that so we know that that is really happening because we have those contacts, you know, through our members who work with the faculty. But we would love to have more faculty input. It's just, you know, you know, would you it's sort of like how do we do it in an efficient way? I guess is the right is the question,
1: all right? Well, listen. I, uh, I want to be respectful of my audience' time here, and uh, before we close it out, uh, if you had a point to—I I know your organization has been involved with so many different projects. Uh, if you could point to one project uh, you're most proud of, that's first part of the question. And the second would be, um, what's what's coming down the pike that you think is going to make the biggest impact going forward?
0: The first part of the question, the thing I'm most proud about is just It's going to may sound like a little wimp out, but it but it really is. It's the collaboration that we've been able to make happen. As I said, you know, suppliers don't normally work together, they don't, and yet we've managed to get them to work together in a very effective manner. Suppliers and institutional people don't usually show up in the same organization and work together, but we've managed to make that happen. K twelve and higher ed. Don't normally work together. And we brought them together and managed to make that happen. And then you bring in the global aspect where there's where there's um, a collaboration going on because all the parties are working on the same stuff and they're contributing to it. To me, that's been the biggest accomplishment of One EdTech is to bring that to the scale that we have and the fact that we can support an even larger scale going forward. But I would, you know, I would have to say that going forward, you know, like. So, Sometimes people want me to say, well, like the technology, like AI, I actually know a lot about AI. I've been involved in AI my whole life, actually, in my working life. But, you know, it really really kind of comes down to, I think, right now to the shorter term thing that's really powerful. It may sound simple, but it's literally just giving the faculty, the students, the parents, in case of K-12, more information about the progress they're making. So all these different tools are collecting information. We have standards that allow that information to show up on a single dashboard right in front of the faculty member or right in front of the parent or whatever. The market really hasn't fully implemented those yet. In the next few years, if we can get the market, whether it's K-12 or hired fully implementing those, it's gonna be a game changer because right now you got to search around for all this different information and everyone from the student to whoever administrators don't know exactly what's going on. And therefore they don't know how to help themselves or help students, that's the near-term one. And then the longer term one is the one we already talked about, which is this idea of the digital credentials, because the, you know, I can even look back at myself. You know, I'm an old person and I'm fairly accomplished or whatever, but I've done a lot of things that I have no record of it except for like a piece of paper that I happen to keep Uh and hang on my wall or whatever. Right. It's like it's like this sort of stuff is really going to change how people these digital credentials and being able to, you know, um, uh, curate them. And so forth, there's really going to be able to change people, not just how they tell their story and open up opportunities, but even how they think about themselves, quite frankly. I mean, you know, because they're going to they're going to be able to think about themselves and their careers and their journeys in a whole different way. And like I said, right at the very beginning of that. But I think that is the area that I'm just so proud that we were able to come in and build start to build the foundation for that
1: yeah well that's that's uh, they're both great answers uh, it just occurred one other thing just occurred to me you know you talk about um sharing how you know these institutions typically don't get together to share i mean i've i've heard about the uh nih syndrome not invented uh here sure um uh, yeah. you know for uh a long time and uh you know people say you know people are faculty more likely to share a toothbrush than their educational content, (laughs) you know? uh, So are you doing work in that area where you're getting down to the level of curriculum materials? I was involved early on in medical education with the... Back there was a consortium uh, to, uh, it's called the Slice of Life uh, Consortium that would mm-hmm. that would share images, you know, pathology images, and we would create uh, video discs and so forth and, and share. But it seems like nothing has really, you know, has has stuck. You know, you know, yeah, there, yeah. there's a ton of uh, educational content that you know people just keep reinventing the wheel over and over again.
0: I know. Yeah. Well, the, I mean, the good news is that the standards we've developed make it actually really easy to share. I mean, literally. Literally, a faculty member can develop a course in their own learning management system, and it can, in in minutes or seconds, be enabled to launch from a totally different learning management system in a totally different institution, yeah. right? And that, that includes that and either the quality, the courses that are coming from places like Coursera or EdX or anybody. You know, you pick 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 your. So that that's the good news. The bad news is is that the 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 business model, if you want to call it that part, or the you know the that that how do you set up a um a, a network that really encourages that kind of sharing right. that's something that nobody's really cracked you know right. at this point in time and um and, and 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 the motivations for cracking it are a little bit unclear like the like the like i said some of these organizations that have created businesses out of this like coursera and edx and um 2u which acquired edx you know they obviously have have a way to do it but it really hasn't created to make a business out of it but it really hasn't created that more general sharing that that you're talking about that's sort of always been the gleam in the eye you know of Technologists (laughs) Technologists <laughs> like us, you know, the magical learning object in the sky.
1: Exactly, exactly. Fit, you
0: know? So it's, you know? yeah. it's yeah. still
1: not has progressed as far as I would like yeah. to see. Well, uh,
0: but from a standards point of view, it can happen right now. Yeah. You know, that's yeah, well, it's, that's that sounds like you're,
1: you're you're the group to uh, get this uh, going. So uh, this has been yeah. a fascinating uh, conversation. I know I learned a lot, and um, I want to thank you so much for uh, talking to my audience today. This has been great. Yeah, thank you, ronnie Really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I learned a lot about how one ed tech helps to lubricate all the technologies that are being used more and more in all levels of education. So stay tuned for the full piece, Aaron, a G-string by Bach. Until next time, have a great week. that's
0: it for today's episode. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to give Rod feedback. You can leave comments on his blog or send email to rod at rodspulsepodcast.com. The preceding audio commentary is the product of the author, Dr. Rodney Murray, and does not represent the official viewpoint of any other
1: institution or company.